and turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21, we'll be reading verses, actually I will, I will back up a little bit just to remind you of the context. I won't back all the way up, well, maybe I will. No, I'll start in verse 12. But uh, the beginning of the chapter was the triumphal, Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem on the back of a, the colt of a donkey. You are, most of you are very familiar with that passage. And then I'll start in verse 12, which is the cleansing of the temple. It's described there in Matthew 21. Again, this is the word of God. Listen to it uh, in a way that reflects your knowledge that that is indeed the case. And Jesus entered the temple and cast out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done, and the children who were crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read... Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes, thou hast prepared praise for thyself. And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Now in the morning, when he returned to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a lone fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it except leaves alone. And he said to it, No longer shall there ever be any fruit from you. And at once the tree withered. Amen. I will actually stop there, even though the next couple of verses relate to this. We're not going to go there today, so I'm going to stop at verse 19. Join me in prayer once again. Oh Lord, we desperately need you at all times, but particularly at this time. All of us, not just myself, the listeners as well. Um, For Lord, there is much danger uh, that uh, can occur or is is found in pulpits across our land. There's much uh, potential for danger in this pulpit. Should I uh, say something that was contrary to your truth? Would you please help me? Enable me not to speak anything but the truth this morning. And please enable your people 
to discern what is true, and if there is any error, that they would reject it, um, that you would grant wisdom to do so. Above all, Lord, we pray for you to bless us and honor yourself through this means of grace. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Children, uh, sometimes you have heard uh, the word, you've heard this word perhaps in the pulpit from myself, or perhaps another minister somewhere else. Um, You've probably heard this word spoken at home. Um, Sometimes your parents, when your parents are talking with them between themselves, or maybe even talking with you children uh, about this. But there's a word, it's kind of a big word, it's an adult word, but it's a word you've probably heard, and I'm going to explain it to you. It's the word hypocrite. Nod your head if you've heard the word hypocrite, children, those of you who are children. Have some of you heard the word hypocrite? Okay. Yes, I, th- I think some of you have. Well, here's, here's what it means in case you don't know what a hypocrite is. There are actually a, there are a couple of different uh, ways you can use the term, um, but there's... We're just going to have one definition that I'm going to give you this morning. It's the one I'm going to use. And the definition of a hypocrite is someone who is trying to convince others that he or she is something that he or she is not. Okay? It's someone who's trying to convince other people around him uh, that he is something that he's not, or she is something that she's not. I'll give you an example of this. Let's say a child. That wouldn't be one of you children here. Um, But let's say there was a child who regularly lies to his mom and his dad. But that child, because he's sneaky or because she's sneaky, that child who regularly lies tries really hard to get his mom and dad to believe that he's not a liar. And perhaps succeeds in doing so. That child is a hypocrite. He's actually a liar, but he's pretending to others like he's not and trying to convince others that he's not a liar by uh, various ways. In case you hadn't figured this out, children, most people don't like hypocrites. In fact, almost nobody likes a hypocrite. And this is especially true, children of God. God hates hypocrites. It greatly angers God when people who claim to love him and who claim to be trusting in Jesus, whether it be a man, a woman, or a child, God is greatly angered when such a person claiming to love him and to be trusting in Jesus doesn't love him and isn't trusting in Jesus savingly. God is angry at the hypocrite. And this passage is about, in part anyway, it's about a whole nation full of hypocrites. That is, the people of Israel, not not all of them, but most of them, in Jesus' day. The Jewish people, the uh, who lived in, um, it was called Judea in Jesus' day, but who were descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, physical descendants or biological descendants. And that was a nation of hypocrites. 
Individually, there were hypocrites in it, and collectively, it was a hypocritical nation. And we're going to look at how Jesus responds to uh, their hypocrisy through a an acted-out parable. You know, most parables are, are, are just written um, things, but this is actually an acted-out parable. Uh, it's been described that way anyway by, uh, by some people who have written on the subject. So we're going to see uh, God's a- uh, attitude toward and uh, how he deals with hypocrites in this passage. <clears throat> Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey occurred on Sunday uh, of the week in which Jesus was crucified. Many Christians uh, in the world celebrate Palm Sunday, the Sunday before Easter. Uh, in Reformed circles, we are uh, more subdued in our uh, use of uh, uh, Palm Sunday. Uh, we believe every... Sunday is uh, Palm Sunday, every Sunday is Easter, every Sunday is Christmas. Every Sunday is to be a celebration of Jesus and what he did for us, not just one Sunday out of the year. Um, And that includes Palm Sunday. But at any rate, many call it Palm Sunday. And that that Sunday was uh, uh, before Jesus died uh, on Friday of that week. That was the day when he rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey colt, and many uh, came out of the city to meet him, and also there were pilgrims going up to Pat from Pat to the Passover, to celebrate the Passover uh, uh, from the east, and they were accompanying Jesus as he is riding on the back of this colt uh, and meeting this crowd coming down, and everybody's celebrating him. That's Sunday of that week. Um, Jesus on Monday, the following day, on Monday, cleanses the temple or uh, drives out of the temple the buyers and the sellers and the money changers who are in the court of the Gentiles, the outermost court of the temple precinct. Uh, and he that occurs on Monday of Passion Week, we're going to call it. Passing, passion meaning death, referring to death. And the incident we are looking at today, that is to say, verses 18 to 19, the cursing of the fig tree, that incident... Um, appears in Matthew's account that I just read a few moments ago to have occurred entirely on Tuesday of uh, the last week of Jesus' life. However, when um, we look at Mark's account, and we're not going to take time to do that now, although I'll read a portion of it later, when we look at Mark's account of this incident, we learn that some of the elements of Jesus' cursing of the fig tree took place on Monday prior to his driving out of the sellers and buyers and money changers from the temple, and that some of the elements of uh, the cursing of the fig tree account occurred, transpired on Tuesday morning. So Mark is actually um, um, gives a fuller account, if you will, and I'm going to reference that periodically as I, uh, some of the facts from his account as I work as we work our way through this. But just know that, that this is a a portion of what goes on with respect to the fig tree occurs Monday, a portion uh, before the cleansing of the temple, and a portion uh, occurs uh, Tuesday morning. By the way, and this is important, uh, from this variation in these two accounts, there's a lot of uh, episodes that occur during the life of Christ and during the uh, public ministry of Christ in particular that are repeated multiple times in the gospel accounts. And you'll see uh, the the gospel writers uh, saying things that are uh, different about some event that took place. 
Um, and <clears throat> this, this is no exception here, the cursing of the fig tree. And we learn some important truths from these uh, variations in these two accounts about how the New Testament writers, uh, excuse me, how the New Testament Gospels, the four Gospels, were written, and about how those four Gospels and the accounts in them relate to one another. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to let well-known reform commentator William Hendrickson uh, unpack these uh, important truths for us, because he <clears throat> says it more succinctly and much better than I would. So I'm just going to read. It's a fairly extended, uh, it's a paragraph from one of Hendrickson's uh, uh, commentaries, or from his commentary, rather. And here's what it says. So what we learn about... Uh, uh, what we learn about uh, how the Gospels were written and how they relate to one another. <clears throat> Hendrickson. Then the gospel, uh, that the Gospel writers were not mere copyists, meaning one copying the other, that the Gospel writers were not mere copyists, but independent authors, each using his own method, appears very clearly in the present instance. And he's referring to the cursing of the fig tree. Since part of the fig tree story occurred on Monday and part on Tuesday, with the cleansing of the temple taking place on Monday between these two parts, it is clear that this story could be handled in two ways. A, it could be handled chronologically, or B, topically. Mark, following the first method of chronology, describing the first part of the fig tree story, um, the part that took place on Monday in Mark. He, he does that. I actually miss, hold, let me, let me read that again. Mark followed the first method, describing the first part of the fig tree story, the part that took place on Monday in Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 14. Then the cleansing of the temple later that same day in Mark 11, 15 through 19. And finally, the second part of the fig tree story, the part that happened on Tuesday morning in Mark 11, 20 through 24. Don't bother turning there, but those are, trust me, those are the right references. So that's the way Mark handled the fig tree uh, episode. Matthew, on the other hand, uses the second method, that of uh, topical uh, topic. He wishes to tell the entire story all at once in one connected and uninterrupted account. In doing this, he does not come into real conflict with Mark, for his, that is Matthew's, time indications are very indefinite. For example, again, this is Hendrickson speaking, for example, he says, now in the morning, in verse 18 of Matthew's account, now in the morning, but he does not indicate which morning. He doesn't say it's Monday morning, he just says, now in the morning. He does, he, does, uh, he does not say, on the following day, also when he begins to, rep he does not say on the following day. Also, when he begins to report the second part of the fig tree story, he simply says, and when the disciples saw it, in verse 20 of Matthew's account. He does not indicate on which day this conversation between Jesus and his disciples took place. It is Mark who makes it very clear that what Matthew says, states in Matthew 21, 18 through 19, occurred on Monday. And what Matthew said in uh, 21, 20 through 22, which I didn't actually read, that that occurred on Tuesday. And here's the point. Here's the, here's the summation of what Hendrickson says and what I want you to get. Each of these two methods 
chronological and topical, has merits. The combination of the two is something to be thankful for. And this is true of all the uh, various incidents that occur in the life of Jesus that are recorded more than once in the New Testament. There are variations in the accounts. We need, and there are different approaches to the incident. We need to understand that they all harmonize with one another, uh, and yet they are different. They are unique. They are independent authors uh, who had independent things to say about what they observed or heard about. So, that's an aside, but it's an important one that uh, you need to keep in mind as you read your Bible. This brings me to the two points that we are going to hone, uh, hone in on the remainder of our time. First, from this passage, we see Jesus expected the Old Testament expression of the church to collectively bear good spiritual fruit. And this account teaches that. And then secondly, we learn and are taught here, Jesus cursed the Old Testament expression of the church because it failed to collectively bear good spiritual fruit. So first, Jesus expected the Old Testament expression of the church to collectively bear good spiritual fruit. The nation of Israel... It wasn't a nation right now, it was under Roman occupation. But the people of Israel, we'll we'll put it that way, but I I might use the word nation, and I mean the people of Israel, the descendants, biological descendants of, uh, of, of Jacob. The people of Israel were the Old Testament expression of the church when Jesus came, was, uh, born into this world. Uh, the people of Israel were the church. Jesus, himself was the messianic descendant of Israel's greatest king, King David. And by God's providence, as we saw, and I, I read, uh, I didn't read it to you, but I referenced it in the early, earliest part of Matthew 21. By God's providence, the cheering crowds uh, that welcomed Jesus as he rode into Jerusalem uh, the previous day, testified to this fact that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah because they declared him to be, you recall, the son of David. That was a messianic title, a very obvious reference to the uh, anointed one of David, the descendant of David, who was going to be the deliverer of God's people. And the crowds, uh, whether they realized it or not, confirmed that that was, in fact, the case. Also, as we read, small children who had observed Jesus heal blind and lame folks who came to him after he had evicted those who were conducting business in the temple precinct, these small children also testified to Jesus' identity as the messianic son of David. They declared him to be so, uh, imitating probably their parents who were uh, there the day before uh, when Jesus rode in to the city. And Jesus was not only the Messiah, but because he was the messianic son of David, he was Israel's king. And the Old Testament scriptures made this abundantly clear for anybody who listened to them or read them if they had access to Old Testament scrolls. Over in Isaiah, a well-known passage that we often read at Christmas time, uh, uh, when we hear incarnational sermons, But Isaiah speaks of this fact that the Messiah was going to be Israel's king. I won't read it, but uh, Psalm 2, 1 through 7, also does the same. 
I'll read the Isaiah account. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. For a child, so he would be a human being, for a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. And the government will rest upon, and who's the us? It's Israel. And the government will rest upon his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Notice, the Messiah, who was going to be born of a woman, was going to sit on the throne of David and of his kingdom. That's Israel. This was Israel's king. Jesus was Israel's king, and this text, which pointed forward to and prophesied his coming, speaks of that fact. And notice also, it doesn't only just speak of the fact that he was to be born of a woman, who we learn in other parts of Isaiah was going to be uh, a virgin, but he was going to be mighty God. He was going to be the God-man. And Jesus was, in fact, Israel's God and Israel's messianic king. And so, I say all this, because as, I, as Israel's God and messianic king, he had the unquestioned right to expect certain things from his subjects, from his kingdom. And specifically, what he had a right to expect from them was a proper response to him following his appearance to them. He had a right to that as their king and as their God. And the fact that Jesus expected this proper response from uh, his covenant people of old is evident from the acted-out parable recorded here in Matthew's Gospel, and also again in Mark's. The fig tree in this acted-out parable clearly represents the Old Testament covenant people of God, the nation or the people, I should say, of Israel, the descendants, the ethnic descendants of Jacob. Israel, by the way, is often uh, in the Old Testament represented as a fruit-bearing plant or tree. I won't take the time to read those accounts right now, but in Jeremiah chapter 8, the passage that we read earlier, you notice the last verse I read, verse 13, spoke of, uh, uh, of Israel as a fig tree, that it would bear no fruit. As a vine, it would bear no grapes. Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7 is also speaks of Israel as a fruit-bearing, I believe it's vine there. And there are other, there are other episodes uh, in the Old Testament, uh, several, where Israel is referred to as a fruit-bearing uh, plant or tree. And Jesus himself, on an earlier occasion in his ministry, had used the figure of a fig tree to describe the people of Israel. Look with me over in uh, Luke chapter 13. Starting in verse 6, this is earlier on, uh, prior to the last week of his life, earlier on in his public ministry. These are the words of Christ himself. Um, All the scripture is the word of Christ himself, but you know what I mean, coming out of his physical mouth. 
Luke 13, verses 6 through 9. And he, Jesus, began telling this parable. A certain man had a fig tree, which had been planted in his vineyard. And he came looking for fruit on it, and did not find any. And he said to the vine keeper, Behold, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? And he, that is the vine keeper, answered and said to him, Let it alone, sir, for this year too, until I dig around it and put in fertilizer. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. But if not, cut it down. That was clear a clear reference to Israel, to the uh, Old Testament expression of the church, which uh, uh, has existed ever since the Garden of Eden. Um, that Old Testament expression of it had an ethnic flavor, I'll put it that way. It was largely Jewish, uh, ethnically, and those who were Gentiles were grafted in, uh, had to become Jews, even though they didn't have Abraham's blood in, their, in them. Uh, they had to become Jews. It was an uh, ethnic-flavored uh, church, for lack of a better way to describe it. Uh, and Jesus is speaking of that in Luke chapter 13. Anyway, so Jesus has already referred to Israel himself as uh, a fig tree, and he does the same thing here in the account that we are looking at today. And he describes them this way to graphically illustrate by his treatment of this fig tree, the eventual fate, or I should say destiny, of the ethnically flavored Old Testament expression of the church, the people of Israel. Again, it's Monday morning of Passion Week, and Jesus and his disciples are heading toward Jerusalem, coming in from the east, from Bethany, where they have spent the previous night. And again, this is early in the day, before his cleansing of the temple. And as Jesus is walking on the road, he becomes aware that he is hungry. Interesting. God is hungry. Because he's the God-man. Reminds us of how thoroughly human Jesus was. So he's hungry. And he happens to notice, perhaps about the time or shortly after he realizes he's hungry, up ahead of him, or up ahead of them rather, this fig tree by the side of the road. He spots it. And this particular fig tree appears to have been full of foliage, not just a little little specks of green, but in full bloom in terms of its leaves. This fact, by the way, is very significant for our understanding of why Jesus reacted the way he did. For you see, a fig tree... Uh, it produces multiple batches, really two different um, batches, if you will, of figs. There are what are called early figs, and then there are later figs. And this is a reference to the early figs. Um, and a fig tree's first batch of figs, its early figs, begin to emerge right around the time that the leaves of the tree begin to sprout. So at the same time leaves are starting to come out of the buds, so too are figs, normally. A fig tree, at least the, the variety that's found in, in, uh, in Israel in the day. And these early figs that would come out uh, as the leaves were coming out, though they 
um, were not ripe in late March or early April when the Passover was observed, which is what's, uh, what's happening uh, at this point in time. Though they weren't ripe, they were edible. They could satisfy hunger and rid, rid one of hunger. So when Jesus, Jesus notices uh, uh, off in the distance this fig tree covered with leaves, it's only natural for him to expect to find figs on it as he gets up close to it, from which he could eat. Jesus expected figs from a fig tree, because that's what fig trees were supposed to do, produce figs. Likewise, Jesus had expected the Old Testament expression of the church, we'll call it the Jewish church, Israel, to collectively and individually bear good spiritual fruit. That this was the case, that Jesus had expected um, Israel to bear good fruit, is evident from the expectation, again, that he had of this fig tree. Now, the expectation that Jesus expected figs is not as evident and clear in Matthew's account as it is in Mark's account. So I'm going to read Mark's account. Um, You can turn with me there if you'd like. It's Mark 11, verses 12 and 13. And Mark's account, it's a little clearer, so thus we'll take the time. Mark 11, verses 12 and 13. And by the way, remember, it's, it's given in two parts. So the fig tree episode in Mark... Mark's account finishes up in verses 20 and 21. Or actually, verse 20. But we're only going to read uh, 12 and 13 of Mark 11. And on the next day, when they had departed from Bethany, this is Monday now, he became hungry. And seeing at a distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. You see, he went purposefully, approached the tree... Because why? Because he expected to find fig trees on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. For it was not the season for figs. By that, he means ripe figs. Remember I said they, were, they don't become ripe really until uh, late May or early June. But they're edible uh, in, uh, in uh, early August. Excuse me, not August. April. There we go. <laughs> or or late, uh, late March. Uh, they're edible. So, as you can see more clearly from Mark's account, he expected figs. That's why he approached this tree. Well, what was the, and again, the tree uh, points to Israel. It's, it's, it's teaching about the nation of Israel in Jesus' day. So, that was physical fruit that he was looking for on the tree, but he was looking for spiritual fruit from Israel. He expected spiritual fruit from the church. What spiritual fruit did he expect from his covenant people, Israel? Well, as Israel's Messiah, he rightly expected to be individually and corporately received, honored, loved, and worshipped, and obeyed by the entire nation And he was to be received that way, loved that way, obeyed that way, worshipped that way as their king and as their God. Their covenant-making God with whom they were in covenant 
externally at least. And this was especially true, this expectation especially applied to Israel's spiritual leaders and to the inhabitants of the city in which God dwelt in a special, unique way, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, who were, had access to the temple anytime they wanted to, who could see uh, the temple and, the implica- and <clears throat> what it taught through its, the way it was designed and so on, uh, and what transpired there, uh, it taught the gospel the need for a mediator and for the shedding of blood, excuse me, and for a high priest who could intercede between them and God. They had the gospel, you see, especially in Jerusalem. Not so much up in Galilee, because they couldn't get there very often. It was a long way away. But in Jerusalem, particularly. And Jesus expected this from his covenant people. Folks, our king, and he's our king just as much as he was theirs, because we are Israel today. Our king expects all those of us who profess to be trusting in him to save them, to save us from hell, and to be the Lord of our lives, which is what a true Christian is. He expects us to be bearing good spiritual fruit, and to be doing so increasingly. More than expecting such uh, spiritual fruit, From us, he, the Father, and the Spirit require it of all those whom they will bring into heaven when we leave this world. This dovetails nicely with what we were learning in Sunday school this morning, actually. It is not good works. I'll read the verses first, and then I'll comment. Getting ahead of myself. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, we read this that points to this fact. Or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor adulterers, nor, excuse me, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. Not going to happen. And then the writer of the Hebrews over in Hebrews chapter 12 in that well-known verse, chapter 4, or verse 14 says, pursue peace without men, excuse me, Pursue peace with all men, pardon me, and, here's the important part for our discussion, and pursue the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. No one will see the Lord without sanctification, real sanctification in their lives, evident in their lives. So, While good works, sanctification, obedience, call it what you will, while good works and obedience play no part whatsoever in spiritually uniting us to Christ or in justifying us, as Trey so aptly said this morning, they play no part in that. Good works are necessary for a person to get into heaven. They play no part in our justification, but you're not going to heaven without good works. Real, although imperfect, efforts to obey, uh, to put off sin, 
and put on righteousness because you love God and are thankful for his salvation that he has wrought in your life. So in light of this, that good works are necessary and all justified people will produce good works, in light of that fact, how would those who know you best, your spouse, your children, your parents, how would those who know you best characterize the spiritual fruit that you are producing overall? How would they characterize it? Would they say, oh, there's quite a bit of good fruit there in that my, my son's life, my daughter's life, or my dad's life, or my mom's life, or my husband's life, or my wife's life? What would they say? There's got to be some good fruit, folks, and it has to be increasing or you're not a Christian. You're headed for hell if there's no fruit in your life. It doesn't matter if your church, if you're a good member in good standing of your church, it doesn't matter if you've been baptized, it doesn't matter if you can quote big swaths of scripture. It doesn't matter if you're a minister or an elder or a deacon, it doesn't matter. You're lost. If you say you love Jesus, you profess to love Jesus, and there's no evidence of it to speak of in your behavior, your thoughts, your words, your actions. Does that describe you? If it is, you're in big trouble. But you can get out of it. You've got to bow the knee to Jesus and trust him alone to save you. That's the only hope you have. And only God can actually affect that in your heart. But if you want to be forgiven and you see what a wretched person you are and you understand that you've been playing games with God and you've been lying to him and lying to others by trying to pretend like you're a Christian when in fact you're not, all you need to do is say, Oh God, I deserve to go to hell. you're a gracious God and you sent Jesus to save hell-deserving sinners. Would you please save me? And mean it. And you trust him to be your Savior and your Lord. None of this cheap, easy grace stuff. It is easy. It's free, actually. Grace is free. But the phrase, easy grace, uh, speaks of people who say, oh yeah, I can just say I believe that Jesus was the Savior of the world and somehow that gets gets me into heaven. Intellectual Uh, apprehension of the truth and nothing more. That will not get you into heaven. That will get you straight into hell. You need to flee to Jesus. And you need to mean it. And you need to trust nothing else but him. Second point, and much briefer. So the first point, Jesus expected the Old Testament expression of the church to collectively bear good spiritual fruit. And secondly, Jesus cursed the Old Testament expression of the church because it failed to collectively bear good spiritual fruit. And again, evident by this acted out parable of the fig tree. The Old Testament expression of the church, Israel, the Jews, turned out to be, an, uh, overall, as a, as a whole, collectively, like the fig tree, in the parable, or in the uh, on this day that Jesus uh, approached, when he approaches this leafy fig tree to satisfy his hunger with some of the fruit that he should have found on it, 
he finds absolutely nothing. It's bare. Just leaves, no fruit. The tree's full foliage promised much in the way of fruitfulness. There ought to be a lot of figs on there because that's a green, leafy tree. But it failed to deliver as advertised. It was a dud. It was a deceitful tree, if you will. And like this duplicitous fig tree, the Old Testament people of God as a whole gave the impression of being fruitful at a glance. Just remember what's going on right now as this is, as Jesus is approaching Jerusalem, uh, Tuesday morning, well, Monday morning and then later Tuesday. Think of what's going on. The temple is bustling with people engaged in or about to engage in, preparing to engage in religious activity. It's Passover. This is the feast that God ordered the people celebrate. They were going to go up and do their thing. Many people were doing it. Yet, like this pretentious tree, the Old Testament people of God had collectively shown themselves to be devoid of spiritual fruit upon closer inspection by their king. Like the people of Isaiah's day, most of first century Judea's population honored Abraham's God with their lips. But their hearts were far from him. And this fact that they, their hearts were far from Yahweh was to be evidenced shortly by their imminent rejection of Yahweh's anointed, Jesus of Nazareth, who was and is God the Son. It was going to happen within the next couple of days. And mass, they were going to say, crucify him. Like a whitewashed tomb, the Old Testament church was beautiful looking on the outside. I'm not talking about Herod's temple either. I'm talking about all the busy religious activity. But inside it was filled with dead man's bones, just like its religious leaders were, as Jesus described them. The whole nation was. And this greatly angered the three persons of the Godhead. It offended the triune God's perfect holiness and it provoked his perfect justice. And God's anger at his covenant-breaking people, Israel, for its collective failure to bear good spiritual fruit is shown in the curse that God the Son placed on the fig tree for its failure to produce good physical fruit. At once, the fig tree withered. And that's after he said, no longer shall there ever be any fruit from you. The curse which Jesus placed upon this tree on Monday morning caused it to immediately start withering. Mark's, the reason I say start withering, Mark's account makes it clear that by the next morning it was completely withered and dead Mark's words from the roots up. Uh, again, 
Matthew's looking more topically at what took place. Uh, Matthew's, uh, Mark's a little bit more careful about his chronology, more particular about his chronology of how things went. But they're, sen- they're essentially saying the same thing. So, <clears throat> the curse that he brought caused the tree to start to wither and, and be fully withered by the next morning and dead. That was the curse on the tree. However, the punishment, the curse which Jesus exacted on Israel, the people of the Old Testament people of God in 70 AD, when he came to her in judicial wrath in the form of Titus's Roman army, that punishment was cataclysmic destruction of the once holy land and its people. This included laying waste to her spiritual capital, Jerusalem, and it included the raising of his own earthly dwelling within Jerusalem. And that raising that he decreed that Titus do symbolized his utter abandonment of the Old Testament, this Old Testament expression of his church in its ethnic Jewish form. He was done. How do we apply this? Well, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure that out. It applies corporately, and it applies individually to us. It applies corporately in that this is a warning to all local expressions of the church and to all larger denominational expressions of the church. You better produce fruit. God is a loving Father. And He loves His children. And we are objects of that love. And He will, has given us all that we need to produce fruit. And we will produce fruit. Not perfectly, Certainly on a corporate level, we, don't, we aren't a perfect church. You aren't perfect Christians. I'm certainly not. But we, those of us who are genuinely Christians, are producing fruit by the grace of God because God loves us. But the church, on its various levels and in, through its various denominational stripes and local entities, expressions, there are a lot of people that say, oh yeah, I love Jesus. Oh, I'm trusting God. And the truth is they hate him. And there are denominations like that, folks. There are presbyteries like that. Maybe not in our denomination, I hope not. But there are certainly people that use the word presbyterian, hold whole presbyteries in other denominations, perhaps, and maybe, God forbid, our own, that hate the God they profess to love, the King they profess to serve and trust. And we know from what Jesus said to the seven churches in Revelation, if you don't bear fruit, I'm going to take your lampstand away. He could take it from us. 
here. It also applies to individuals, this text, who profess, again, to be trusting in Jesus, but who are not diligently striving to honor him in the way they live their life. Individuals who are not striving to put off the sin that God hates, that yet remains within them, and are not striving to obey God's will as it is set forth in the Holy Scriptures, particularly as it's summarized in the Ten Commandments. Yes, all ten of them, including remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. This passage is a warning. Don't mess with me. I can see your heart. That's what God is saying here. It better be genuine. Your professed love for me and trust in my Son. I'll end with this passage, the words of Jesus. His warning to you and to me, to all of us. That we might be sobered, not if you're a Christian, we don't need to be terrified by these words. We need to be sobered, and and we need to be humbled that this could be us. But we don't need to be scared. But if you're here today, or if you're listening uh, remotely, and you're just going through the motions of religion, you need to hear this and know that God is saying this to you. Matthew 3. Uh, this is uh, John the Baptist. Starting in verse 7 uh, through verse 10. These aren't all John's words, they're Matthew's words, but it's, this, it's the uh, passage describing uh, John the Baptist preaching. This is what the Lord says. But when they, excuse me, when he, John the Baptist, saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Notice that. And then we read, Therefore, bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. I think the stones were the Gentiles. I think that's us, actually. He goes on, And the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. That is a reference to hell, eternal consumption by the wrath of God. And you will experience that if you are not clinging to Jesus and Jesus alone. And if there aren't, isn't a desire for holiness in your life, uh, an effort to obtain greater holiness in your life that flows from a saving union with Jesus. We all deserve the fire. Jesus took the fire for those who will trust him. Trust him. You won't regret it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you
We thank you for passages about covenant breaking that sober us. They should. It's scary. Because we, apart from your grace, would all be covenant breakers destined for hell. Like many of the false professors in Jesus' day. We thank you that by your grace, we are not those of us who are resting in Christ alone for our salvation. We are not represented by this withered fig tree. Thank you so much that you save hell-deserving sinners uh, through Christ's atoning work. Thank you for saving us. We pray that you would, as you have promised to do, cause us to persevere in faith, in repentance, and in good works until that day when we come before you face to face. And we pray that we would do this, Lord, solely because of the of hearts that are filled with love and gratitude to you for what you have so kindly done for us. If anyone is listening to me in this room or remotely that has been playing games with themselves, with you, with other people, faking Christianity, or perhaps never even claiming Christianity, claiming Christ as their Savior and Lord. But somebody who is unconverted, would you please scare the hell out of them, Lord? And lead them to Christ. For it's in his name we pray, amen. Amen. Receive now God's blessing. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you and he also will bring it to pass. Amen.